0: And welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. Next Sunday, uh, we're going to be starting a a new teaching series called Guardrails. And uh, I'm very excited about this, this series that's coming up. And one of the reasons that I'm excited about it is because we're kind of integrating small groups and Sunday together. So we'll be teaching a lesson on the next five Sundays, starting next Sunday, um, called Guardrails. And then if you join the Guardrail small group, when you go to that small group experience that week, you'll be able to talk about the material, maybe share your experiences in kind of walking out or living out that material, um, have some discussion here, uh, other people's experiences. And so I'm, I'm really excited about that and that's starting up next week with a series of guardrails. So again, if you're looking for a good time to start coming to church, today's a good day because you heard about next Sunday. See what I did there? Yeah, yeah. So you got to come back next Sunday. That's where the really good stuff happens. But um, this morning I, I'm going to teach a message that uh, is kind of standalone, just a little bit on its own, and it's about a character that we've talked about here before at City Grace, a man in, in the biblical record whose life is an inspiration to all of us that aren't perfect. Any imperfect people in the room, yeah, and the rest of y'all are lying in church. But uh, no, uh, Jacob is, is just such an inspiration to me, and, and so we're going to talk about him a little bit today. And, and putting my thoughts together and thinking through this, uh, you know, and, and, and looking at the message that his life kind of shares, it just, to me, it's it's just funny who we end up becoming in life, Right? Because when we're younger, we have you know such grand aspirations and dreams, and we want to be firefighters. I remember when Caleb was little, we asked Caleb, Caleb, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, Well, I want to be a firefighter or I want to work at McDonald's, one or the two. And uh, so you know, and my my brother-in-law Chad said, Well, you know, well, what you just want to work at McDonald's forever? And he said, Well, yeah, I like McDonald's. I was like, That's a good reason to work at McDonald's. So. You know, but we just all have dreams and aspirations and things we want to be and people we want to become and and things we want to see happen in our life or make happen in our life. And when we're in our teen years, how many of you ever said something like this? I'm never going to be like my mother, right? I'm never going to be like my father, right? I'm never. And then by the time we're 37, we can't stop turning off the heater and telling the kids to get off the grass, right? It's just, you tell your spouse, you know, you're, you're turning into your dad. You're turning into your mom. And then there's... Fist fight that follows that, but and then people go to college for years and years and years and years and years. You go to college, right? And then you end up in a job that has nothing to do with your major. I guess you know, because the fact of the matter is that who we become isn't always who we plan to be, and this isn't even necessarily. A negative, right? I mean, for some of us, thank God we didn't end up who we thought that we were going to be. But whether that's financially speaking, we're not all who we planned to be financially. Whether it's your marriage, or whether it's your is, whether it's a career, whether it's, you know, your kids, maybe your kids look and act different than what you imagine. Maybe you even parent differently than you thought you would. But just as people, it's just a fact that we, you know, don't always become who we plan on being. Do you guys remember that first time That that moment when it hit you that, like, you know, your parents actually used to be people full of hopes and dreams, too. Isn't that a weird thing to discover, right? Like, this, my parents had hopes and dreams as well, and then came us, and we crushed their hopes and dreams, Um, you know, just. But then, as you look at this, like, it kind of begs the question because not all of us know, just even all of the opportunities that are out there. And so as you're younger and kind of coming into, you know, maturity and and, and options and and this kind of stuff in life, it it really begs the question, like, who helped you plan who you dreamed to become? Who gave you guidance on that path, right? Who fed your dreams? Who challenged you? Who was your inspiration? Who instilled values and, and ethics and some guidance into you? And for some of us, that person maybe wasn't around, or maybe for some of us, that person or people were around, but they weren't necessarily the greatest, right? And and Chelsea is, is, is involved in early childhood education. I, I of course, am and pastoring. Um, and, and you realize very quickly just how vital good parents are to setting up children and young people for success, you know? And I give honor to my parents who are not here this morning. I give honor to my parents and also apologies. They tried. They really did. Um, But who we become isn't always who we planned to be. Who we become isn't always who we dreamed of being. We don't always become that person that we looked up to and wanted to imitate. And yet, and yet, and this is so, this is so beautiful. This is so powerful. You have to hear this. You have to get this this morning. This is amazing to me because who we become isn't always who we plan to be. But with God, it's enough one person clapped. The rest of you guys know that with God, whoever you ended up being, it's enough. And God makes up for whatever we lack. Whatever version of ourselves we have become, it's enough. What is it enough for? It's enough for God to find. It's enough for God to rescue. It's enough for God to breathe new life into, to breathe new hope into, to breathe new possibility into. It's enough for God to do this big Bible word that we use sometimes, redemption. He is able to redeem who we are or who we have become, even when who we have become wasn't Who we plan to be. And this idea of redemption, this is so powerful to me. This is such an amazing concept. And and sometimes we use this word in church and it doesn't really kind of come across what we're talking about. But maybe in your everyday life, you understand the idea of redemption. Because some of us here, maybe all of us here, we all at one time or another have had a, a coupon to go somewhere, right? Anybody ever had like a coupon for a free $5 foot long from Subway, right? You do. Now, you take that coupon It's worth five bucks to Exxon and try and put some gas in your car with it. What's going to happen? Nothing's going to happen. That's exactly right. They're going to laugh you out of the store and tell you you can't use that to pay for your gas. That thing is useless there. It only has value if you use it where it was created to be used. It only has that value when you take it to Subway. And use it there at Subway to get your $5 long with all of the, 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 the mayo and the mustard and the pepperoncinis and, and the shredded lettuce, but not the tomatoes and the turkey and the cheese. And then they warm it up a little bit and they put it in that little toaster oven. And then there's the stuff they sprinkle over the top and all that. It's just like, but no, that coupon is only good if you redeem it where it was meant to be redeemed. But even if you get it dirty at Exxon, even if you drop it on the ground or it gets a little torn, or even if it comes up smelling like gasoline by the time you leave, it does not matter because when you take it to where it was intended to be used and use it for the purpose that it was intended to be used for, that little piece of paper that was worthless at Exxon suddenly has real value and real worth when you use it over there. And that's the same thing with our lives. We have tried to use ourselves, use our lives, use who we are in places and areas and for things that they were never created to be used for. But God finds us ripped and dirty and torn and stinky, laying on the ground, forgotten and thrown away by other people. But God picks us up and he redeems us and restores us. And that should just be That should just be something that just fills us with wonder because a lot of times we see ourselves just as not really having worth or value, but in God's eyes, in our Creator's eyes, there is real worth and real value no matter who we have become, and that's who He is. That's why we celebrate and clap our hands and wave our arms when we call Him our Redeemer, because he has redeemed us and he redeems broken people and he, re- he redeems diminished dreams and he redeems despair and depression and they're banished by his wisdom and his love and his design. And so it, it's interesting, isn't it, that we try and use our lives in certain ways and they end up broken and feeling kind of valueless and maybe without worth. And, but God takes us and who we become with him may not be exactly who we plan to be, but in the end, it's so, so much better. So much better because he knows us, because he understands us, because he designed us. And so I'm amazed by the story of Jacob, actually. Jacob is the story of redemption. Jacob uh, is is, is a story that is cautionary but hopeful, and and Jacob is even a story that seems full of contradictions when it comes to God and and how God deals with right and wrong and good and bad people because Jacob seems to be exactly who God would not choose to carry on his hope for the world. And and I think I understand now how Jacob, who is, is flawed and dishonest and evil and manipulative and all of these things, is actually a credit to God. Because when you read the story of Jacob at first in the Bible, you think, well, this is supposed to be God's guy. This is supposed to be one of God's people. But he's a horrible guy. He's a horrible people. Like, why would God have Jacob? And then I look at my own life, and it's like, oh, yeah, well, that's why. You know. But it, the life of Jacob is actually not a stain on God's you know kind of march of people that he has had down through history, but rather it's a credit to God and who God is, because God had promised Jacob's grandfather, and that was a guy named Abraham, listen, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I'm going to make a covenant, this contract between you and and your family and me and, and, you know, you and your family and your descendants. You're all going to live in relationship with me, and I'm going to bless you. And if you'll just follow me, I'm going to make your lives great. And the reason I want to do this is because when other people around you see your life and see how blessed you are, they're all going to look at me and turn back to me. And they're going to come to me, and so me and the rest of the world are going to be put back into right relationship through my relationship with you. And so Abraham, the original guy with the promise, you know, Jacob's grandfather actually, he has a few hiccups in his life, but mostly it kind of works out. Just to, to, we can see, you know, why God liked Abraham, why God chose Abraham, used Abraham. Everybody seems to like him. His immediate son Isaac seems like a great guy. He was very boring in a good way just didn't really get into trouble really didn't do too much wrong but then Jacob comes along the son of Isaac two generations removed from the promise and it's kind of like the first real test to God's promise like is God really going to you know keep his word to Abraham or by the time it gets to Jacob is God just going to be like you know crumple up the paper and we're going to start over with somebody else cuz Jacob just seems like that kind of guy and 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 you know it's amazing that God Through the life of Jacob and with the life of Jacob, God actually keeps his promise to Abraham. And by the time Jacob exits the stage of history, he exits a a vastly different person than the one who stepped from behind the curtain as what we know, as, or what he's called as a a heel grabber. A heel grabber, which just seems like a really weird weird term for a name. But Jacob was the second born of twins. And uh, if anybody here knows, firstborn is first place. And as my brother knows very well, secondborn is just the first loser. And that's the way that it works. And even more so for Jacob's family. Whoever was firstborn in the family was the one that was blessed and favored. And the firstborn got the inheritance of of most of the possessions and the inheritance of, of spiritual leadership. And Jacob's mom had had this really, really rough pregnancy. You can imagine back in those times, you know, with twins on the inside. It felt like this, when the Bible describes it, it's like there was this WWE cage match going on inside her belly. And it turns out that's pretty much what was going on because it was Jacob and his twin brother Esau in there and when it was time for them to be born. Esau was born first. And and as Esau just kind of came into the world, it was so strange because there was a hand attached to his foot. There wasn't supposed to be any hands attached to feet then or now. It's just not the way things work, and they didn't realize that it was actually that second baby in there, and then the second baby came into existence, and it was Jacob holding on to his brother's heel. Jacob, the fraternal twin, literally grabbing Esau's heel, literally struggling to be born first, literally from the time he was inside the womb. He was a fighter. He was a wrestler. He was a struggler, but Esau ends up being the firstborn, and Jacob comes in second. And Esau is just this super hairy dude. He looked like a red-headed Chewbacca. And he was a hunter and a fieldsman. And he was born with an anchor tattoo on his forearm. And he loved spinach. And and dad loved Esau. And Esau was rough and and tumble. And then there was heel grabber Jacob. And Jacob was pale and fair-skinned. And they lived in the desert. And there was no sunscreen back then. So he was just out of luck, right? It was just going to be a rough life For Jacob, and he hated the outdoors, and he stayed in his tent and played Fortnite all day, and he was a mama's boy, and and, and boy, did mama love him more than she loved rough and smelly Esau. But heel grabbers reminded of being second place at every single birthday party. Every single celebration of their life, he, he knows that if he had just been the first one out, if he had just been the firstborn, he would have been blessed and it would be his inheritance. And Esau's not really even older. I mean, technically, his hand is actually older than Esau's foot because his hand was on Esau's foot and he just wishes so bad that he had been the firstborn, but he wasn't. But from the beginning of his life, he's a fighter. He's a wrestler. He's scheming and, and trying to figure out how can I get better gifts and how can I be noticed. And his growing up years are full of desperate attempts to be first at something, to not end up with leftovers, to not end up with hand-me- hand-me-downs. But so often he he's, it just ends up disappointed. He's always bested by the bigger, stronger, faster Esau, right? Esau always wins at archery. Esau is always there killing the animal first and, and skinning and dressing the deer in record time and Jacob's still trying to put the arrow into you know the, the bow and, and, and see if he can maybe get something for that night's dinner. And Esau is rough and crude and un- unkind rather and unconcerned with formalities and rituals and roles. And Esau just didn't even care that he was the firstborn. He just didn't even really seem to think about it. He just took it for granted and he didn't care about the inheritance it didn't feel like and seemed to like not at all want the family position of eventually one day becoming the spiritual leader, the head of the family. And so he certainly wasn't threatened by this sniveling weakling of a brother that just, and this just, I mean, that just made Jacob even more mad. Esau didn't even really seem to care about what was going on. And so one day, Esau had gone out hunting, and he's coming back from the hunt, and he's starving. He's been hiking over hills and and, and mountains and stalking and tracking, but this time he has come up empty. He didn't kill anything. He didn't find anything, and he's kind of dragging his feet on the pathway home. And as he's coming home, his nose gets a whiff of something besides his own B.O., and it smells like soup, the best kind of soup, bean soup. He didn't have Chick-fil-A back then, so I guess bean soup probably smelled pretty good. And as he comes through the gate of the family ranch there, he sees Jacob sitting there stirring a big pot of stew. And so he says to Jacob, quick, like quick, I'm so hungry, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. And heel grabber, you know, con artist, wrestler, fighter, Jacob looks up and says, what stew? Oh, this stew this stew that I just happened to be cooking right here by the entrance to our family ranch, this stew, you know, where I happened to be preparing, not in the kitchen, but out here where I knew you would smell it coming right, you know, home, the first thing that you would see. And yeah, you want some of this stew. Okay, well, I can give you some of this stew, Esau, but first uh, sell me your birthright. He's planned this. He's been waiting for this. He's waiting for a day that Esau would come home starving. He knows his brother. He knows how his brother is when he's hungry. And he knows that Esau can't care less about the birthright, could not care less about that legal recognition of being firstborn. And, and so they don't have pens and paper back then. That, you know, oaths are kind of how they make agreements. There are probably one or two servants standing nearby to serve as witnesses, and Jacob tells Esau, well, why don't you sell me your birthright, and then I'll give you some bean soup. And we would think, well, that just seems like a silly trade. Who would do that? Well, apparently Esau would do that. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some cornbread and some bean stew, and he ate, and he drank, and he got up, and he left. So Esau despised that thing that made him Legal heir. That thing that made him, the you know, gave him the position that would make him revered and respected by all of the family and by the tribes all around them, all of it sold for a bowl of beans. And as he leaves, he doesn't even seem to care about what he's done. But Jacob does. Jacob's been planning. We fast forward a few years to a time when their father, Isaac, is, is about to die. And Isaac knows that his time is short, and actually Isaac's eyesight is just totally gone. He's, he's blind at this point. He's bedridden at this point. And so he calls Esau in, which was his favorite son. He says, look, I'm about to die, and it's, it's time for me to, to go through this ceremony where I place my hands on your head, and I convey to you the leadership of the family. I make you the head of the family, pass on to you the possessions, the inheritance, all of this kind of stuff. And Jacob and all of his servants and all the rest of the servants, everybody else Esau is going to serve you once I perform this ceremony. But first, here's what I want you to do. I'm getting older and I'm kind of hungry right now. So you make that stew just like your brother does, just like your mother does. I want you to go get some game go hunt them down, bring it back, make me my favorite meal, Esau, because as soon as I eat that, I'm going to put the family blessing onto you. And so Esau takes off, and he leaves, and it turns out that mom has heard the whole thing. Well, mom likes Jacob better than mom likes Esau. This is a really messed up family, I'm telling you. These are God's people. This is like days of their lives. It's crazy. And and so the mom runs into Jacob's tent. She turns off the Xbox. She tells him, get up because your your brother's gone to, to find this. And it's time for the blessing to be passed on. So go into the pen and give me a goat and bring it to me. I'm going to, I'm going to sacrifice, or you know, not sacrifice, but prepare the goat and cook the goat. And I'm going to make your father's favorite dish. And you can take it to your father and you can have the blessing instead of your brother Esau. Jacob's like, well, there's no way that's going to work because you know Esau's like Chewbacca and I don't have any hair on my arms or anything. And she says, well, when you kill the goat, bring me the skins too. And he's like, what in the world is mom up to? Well, she was up to cooking dad's favorite meal and she made it. And then she took the skins and she actually tied them onto Jacob's hands and arms and the back of his neck so that Jacob will feel hairy like his brother Esau. How much body hair did Esau have? that's crazy. We want you to, (laughs) we want to make it seem like you're your brother. So give me a goat skin and I'll put that onto you. And she does. And so Jacob dies. And and then he's worried about his smell, but she goes and gets some of Esau's clothes out of the laundry and puts Esau's clothes on Jacob. So now Jacob's wearing goat skin, stinks like Esau, has dad's favorite meal, goes into blind dad's tent, you know, and says, hi, dad. (coughs) Hi, dad. It's Esau. And I'm here with your with your favorite meal. And, and, and Isaac says, well, that doesn't really sound like Esau. So why don't you come close? You know, before I do this ceremony and, and pass the blessing on to you and give you the inheritance, come a little bit closer so I can smell you. He comes closer and dad's like, ooh, that's Esau. I smell it and, and I feel the, the goat skin and it feels like like Esau. And so I, I think this must be Esau. And so Jacob went to him and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him. He blessed him. And he went through this ceremony where he placed his hands onto Jacob's head, and he conveyed and conferred upon him the headship of the whole family, the leadership of the whole family, the inheritance and the possessions and everything else. And Jacob stole inheritance. Jacob stole, and this is what, this is what blows me away. Jacob stole position with God. From his blind and about to die father, literally right out from under his father's nose and away from his cursed brother, heel grabber, con artist, thief, stealer to a blind and bedridden old man who just happened to be his own father, a thief, second place, not good enough, not deserving enough, the unwanted twin, right? I want you ever think about that? I wonder if twins ever realize that at least one of them was unplanned. It's the unwanted twin, the unwanted kid, right? And Esau comes back, and Esau's red hot with anger, and he holds a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given to him. And he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. So Jacob, he's not dumb. He gets up. He leaves Dodge, right? And he doesn't even look like he gets to tell his dad goodbye. And he sneaks away to his uncle's house, his mom's brother's house. And on the way there, a kind of strange thing happens. God shows up to Jacob, to this thief, to this con artist. God shows up to him in a dream. And Jacob has just had this position with God conferred upon him by by trickery, by deceit. But it's like God is confirming his covenant promise with this guy who just stole it. And it's so weird and it doesn't feel right. But God says to Jacob, I am with you, you thief, right? I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And in spite of Jacob stealing his position with God, it's like God is telling him, look, I may have my work cut out with you, but I'm not going to throw you away. If I can get your attention, there is still something in your life I can redeem. can redeem. Oh, isn't that good news to all of us? So Jacob wakes up from the dream and wow, he says, surely God was in this place and I didn't even know it. I'm running from my brother. I'm running from my past. I'm running from the mess I made and God just happened to be where I end up. Isn't, you know, what are the chances of that? And we all kind of have that happen in our lives, right? We come into tragedy, into pain, and and, and just all of these circumstances that overwhelm us and and threaten to to steal our sanity and our joy. And and, and what a coincidence that right when we have our troubles, someone out of the blue says they're going to pray for us. Someone offers for us to come to their church. Someone says they care about us, right? Who knew that God would be there in our times of troubles? Who knew that God would come close even when it seems that we deserve his presence the least. And so Jacob does with God what we've all done at different times. This is so human of Jacob. And he says to God, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. Everybody say, if. God, if you will, then I will. God, if you won't, then I promise I'll never again. God, I promise if you will, then I'll start. Come on, somebody. We've all done this. This is so, so very human. And so God gets Jacob's attention, and he starts getting Jacob's attention from that moment on, and he starts giving Jacob an education in the dangers of con artistry. And he does, he does this through nobody else than Jacob's own uncle Laban. And it turns out that being a con artist actually runs in Jacob's family. And it turns out that that's not the only thing that runs in Jacob's family because there weren't very many folks alive back then. So there was a lot of intermarrying back in those times. And family reunions were a great place to find a date. So Jacob found a date in his cousin Rachel. And they weren't just kissing cousins, they were marrying, settling down, and raising a family cousins. And Rachel was beautiful, and she was easy on the eyes, and she was kind and innocent and and wonderful all through her story. But then Rachel had an older sister named Leah, and and apologies to anyone here named Leah or anyone that you know named Leah, but the Leah that was in Genesis was very, very homely. She was just not very attractive, and she was the older sister to Rachel, And so Jacob tells Uncle Laban, hey, I want to marry Rachel. And Uncle Laban says, well, okay, you can marry Rachel, but you're going to have to work for me for seven years. Jacob's like, wow, seven years for Rachel, but okay, I'll do it. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Can we hear an, oh, yes, seven years of hard labor, to pay the price for marrying Rachel. And Jacob gets way more than he bargained for. Because here's what happens. They have a wedding feast. They have a ceremony. They have a celebration. And Uncle Laban, the father of the bride, invites everybody from all of the tribes and all of the villages around. He invites everybody in the area, come to my daughter's wedding. And everybody's dancing and feasting and drinking, including Jacob How many of you know that good things don't really happen when you drink too much, right? Ever notice that? Nobody ever gets drunk and is like, let's build a children's hospital. Like, no. You get drunk and you do dumb things. And so Jacob gets drunk and and he's there. and, and, And I love the way the New Living Translation explains what happened when Jacob opens his eyes the next morning. Because Jacob's just married someone, Rachel, right? Right? He marries Rachel and then he wakes up in his tent the next morning, and the birds are chirping outside, and it's the crisp morning air, and she's probably laying on her side, facing away from him, and he sees her shoulder and thinks, I'm the luckiest man in the world to to be married to Rachel, and he thought, how cute. Rachel snores a little bit when she sleeps. Remember when you're first married, and it's cute when your wife snores? I remember those days, yeah. And he maybe touches her, her hair, and he touches her shoulder and whispers gently, good morning, my love. And his beautiful bride rolls over and stares at him and says, Good morning, but it was Leah. It was the ugly one. Uncle Laban slipped the ugly, ugly girl into Jacob's tent under the cover of darkness. Now Jacob's married to Leah. What about Rachel? Well, she's not married. And How fitting is it? that he tricked his blind father into thinking his es- he was Esau. But his uncle has tricked him into thinking Leah was Rachel, and his eyes worked just fine. His trickery got him a covenant with God. Uncle Laban's, uncle Laban's trickery got him married to a wife that he didn't want. And it's almost like God is asking Jacob, you know, how, how do you like it, heel grabber? How do you like it, thief? How does it feel, you backstabber, and he's always relied on his wits, but now he's starting to realize maybe I'm, I'm not as smart as I think I was. Maybe conning people has consequences, and maybe I need to change because you see who we become isn't always who we plan to be, is it? The things that happen in life just don't always turn out like we planned, and I never thought it would turn out like this. I thought I'd be further along by now. I thought I'd be wealthier by now. Can I hear a good amen from somebody? Like, thought my home would be stable. I thought my career would be on a good path. I thought I'd be a better person, thought I've accomplished more. I never thought I'd still be struggling with this. I thought I could quit any time. I never dreamed that years later, I would be stuck with something I can barely even stand to face. And I'm not talking about looking at somebody else. I'm talking about looking at myself in the mirror. And now he's the husband in an unwanted, unplanned marriage It's almost like Jacob goes on this self-destructive binge and he marries not only Leah, but he marries her personal attendant girl. Now he's got two wives that he doesn't really care for. And, And then Laban tells him he can still marry Rachel too, but he's got to work another seven years. And he agrees to another seven-year contract, and he marries Rachel, and and then you know when he marries Rachel, I imagine that wedding night, he has floodlights set up outside his tent, inside his tent, right? Requires three forms of photo ID, a birth certificate, and a current utilities bill before he lets her into the honeymoon tent, right? He's learned his his lesson. Back-to-back wedding. And then think about this, like what must Leah have been feeling? Like her dad's just used her as is a pawn in this game to get free employee, to get a free employee? Like, what must she be feeling? What, you know, her husband, what he thinks of her, doesn't think of her. And this is a jacked up family. And Jacob knows it, but he's still kind of at the end of his wits and he's self destructing and he's married Leah and her, you know, attendant girl. Now he's married Rachel and he marries her attendant girl as well. Now he's got four wives because who we become isn't always who we plan to be. And as you might imagine, family relationships do not fare well in that kind of environment. And Jacob does some funny business while he's working out those seven years for his uncle Laban, and somehow he ends up with all of the healthy livestock on the whole family ranch as belonging to him. And now his brother-in-law cousins, which some of us are familiar with those kinds of relationships, but now his his brother-in-law cousins want to kill him. Literally, they want to kill cousin brother-in-law Jacob. And so for the second time in his life, Jacob has again done something so unforgivable to his family that he has to pack up and sneak away. But this time, it's not just him running away. This time, he has four wives and herds and hired hands and tents and stuff and children. And see, now his heel grabbing and now his con artistry isn't just messing with his life. now starting to affect the lives of people around him. And isn't that really what happens to all of us? We thought it would be our little thing. We thought it wasn't hurting anybody else, and we're not asking anything of anybody else, but suddenly the ripples of our behavior start spreading in these ever-widening circles. They touch our neighbors, and they touch our careers, and they touch our finances, and our families, and our children. We didn't mean to. We never intended that this would happen, but who we become isn't always who we planned to be, and the circumstances in which we find ourselves aren't necessarily the circumstances in which we thought we'd find ourselves, and so Jacob has to leave. He takes all of his family possessions, wives, and heads home and, you know, puts the killing cousins behind him and points his camel's nose at a murderous brother. And he sends out some scouts ahead of time to tell him what what the situation is back home. And the scouts come back with some bad news because Esau has gotten word that Jacob is on his way home. And Esau, all this time, Esau's had the run of the whole family ranch to himself. All this time, even though he's not the official leader anymore, Esau, the firstborn, is enjoying the benefits as if he was the one who owned everything and ran everything and to whom everything belonged. He's had possession of all the possessions, but now the heel grabber is on his way home and legally the heel grabber can take away everything that Esau has been enjoying. And so the scouts come back and they tell Jacob, we've got some bad news. Esau's coming our way with 400 armed men. And so Jacob, the schemer, starts scheming a way to minimize his losses. Think of the horror. Think He's having to scheme with his own family, and he starts scheming a way to minimize the losses in his own family. To minimize the number of his own family that are going to die. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks, and the herds, and the camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Trying to decide how he can keep half of his family, because the other half surely is going to die. And finally, finally, this, this next verse, finally at the end of himself, at the end of his own wits, and at the end of his own abilities and strength, then Jacob prayed. Thank the good Lord. Finally, at the end of himself, Jacob prayed. And he tells God, I am unworthy of all of the kindness and the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. I am divided. My own house is divided. My own life, my own mind, my own heart is divided. And what Jacob had become wasn't exactly what Jacob had planned to be. God, when I dreamed of getting married, I never imagined that it would happen four times. Three of them to people I didn't really want to marry. God, when I dreamed of being wealthy, I never imagined that it would happen when I stole from my uncle. God, when I dreamed of traveling the world, I never imagined that I would be running from people who want to kill me. When I dreamed of one day counting my wealth and my blessings and my children, I never imagined that it would be so that I could divide their number by two, so hopefully only half of them get slaughtered. And Jacob says these words that we have said ourselves so many different times God save me. God, I don't know what that looks like. God, I don't know how. I don't know when. I don't know how you're going to work it out, but God, Save me. Save me from Esau who's coming at me. Save me from Laban who's running after me. Save me from harm. Save me from death and sorrow. Save us from being homeless and wanderers. Save me from what I have done to myself. And that night Jacob divides his family into two and he kisses his wives and kisses his children, who knew. And he didn't know at that time. I mean, is this going to be the last time? that I hold my children in my arms. This is going to be the last time that I touch them on the heads. And if you can put yourself into that camp that night, the the tears and the sorrow and the fear had to just be palpable and in the air. and, And there's deep sorrow. And Jacob sends them on their way. And Jacob remains alone in the camp poking sticks into the fire and thinking of all the ways that life should have gone and crying and weeping and heartbroken, I'm sure, and still praying under his breath. I'm sure God saved me from what I have done to myself. And then we run into one of the strangest, strangest verses in the Bible. This is so strange. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Like when you're reading the story in the Bible, you're like turning back a few pages. Like, did I miss something? Like, who's the man? Where did the man come from that's wrestling with Jacob? How did he get there? Was it a sneak attack maybe? Can you imagine that? being alone, camping, sitting on a log, staring into a fire and somebody jumps on your back? Can you imagine that? I would have carried that person like three miles to the freeway. Like, he doesn't know who this is. Was it a friendly conversation that turned ugly? We don't know. But all we know is that this man came and somehow he and Jacob got into an argument and he and Jacob started wrestling. But Jacob, Jacob's been wrestling his whole life. Jacob's been wrestling since before he was born. Jacob is the heel grabber. Jacob is the wrestler. And I think all of Jacob's frustration and all of Jacob's anger come boiling out. And I think Jacob's adrenaline kicks in. And Jacob actually starts winning the match, which is so strange when we find out who the man turns out to be. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled. With a man. And as you read the story, you you find out that this man who shows up to wrestle with Jacob was some kind of strange appearance from God. Like God showed up in Jacob's physical space, in Jacob's world, just to, to, to put himself into that circumstance, to grab Jacob's attention, to get him to notice God finally. And as Jacob is wrestling with basically an appearance of God in human form, he starts winning the fight. But God knows judo. God pulls his hip out of socket, and and he can't overpower Jacob, and, and he brings Jacob to the end of Jacob, and finally, Jacob has no more physical strength left, and Jacob has to stop depending on Jacob, and Jacob finally has to look to God, and at some point, Jacob realizes this isn't just some random stranger, and Jacob turns from wrestling to clinging, because at some point, God turns from wrestling with Jacob to threatening to walk away. From Jacob and leave him alone. And I think there are times in our lives when the worst possible thing that could happen to us is for God to allow us to do things our own way. It's for God to walk away and to allow us to continue moving on in our own wisdom and in our own strength and in our own ability. And Jacob finally realized that getting his own way with God was the quickest way to losing. So Jacob took a life-altering action And he began to hold on to God and refused to let him go without a blessing. See, Jacob has fought and gotten his own way with people his whole life. But if he did the same thing with God, he would end up losing everything. And so Jacob shifts from grappling to grabbing on. He switches from from half Nelsons and headlocks to holding on for dear life, to to the man's waist, to the man's leg, and he can't lift himself up, and his hip is out of socket, and the pain that he's in, he's holding on to the leg, and then the calf, and then the foot, and then an arm tries to pry him off, and he grabs on to the arm, and then he's holding on to the leg again. I mean, it's like trying to put your three-year-old to bed, right? It's like dragging the leg with the kid hanging on, and God's trying to get away from Jacob, and Jacob won't let him go. And God says to him, let me go. And Jacob says something so beautiful. Jacob says something so instructive, and we have to learn this. If you ever find yourself in this kind of circumstance, or this kind of desperation, this kind of situation, If you ever find yourself to be someone that you never planned to be, wrestling with things you never dreamed that you would be wrestling with or in circumstances or troubles that you would never imagine would be part of your story, then like Jacob, I encourage you, sometime, somehow, somewhere, some way, get a hold of God and give God your anger and your frustration and your hurt and your selfishness and your pride and your destructive tendencies and say to God what Jacob said to God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I will not let you go, God, unless you bless me. I will not let go of my grip on you until you turn You bless me. Find a prayer closet. Find a time when the kids are gone and and the wife or the husband is at work. Find a place where you can get real. Find a place where you can make some noise and tell God, I've been making plans on my own and the dreams that I've had, I never really invited you to be a part of them. But now that I am where I am, God, and now that I am who I am, since you have come close enough in this moment so that I can reach out and grab a hold of you, God, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me, until you bless me. And the man turns to Jacob and he looks at him and he gets to the heart of the issue and he asks him, what's your name? What is your name? Do you realize that God never asks a question because he lacks information? God's questions are always a setup for our revelation. So who are you? Tell me your story. Tell me your identity, Jacob. And your pain." with your hip dislocated, and your fear with your enemy just around the corner, and your silly wisdom where you're dividing your family so you only lose half of them. Who are you? And see, when Jacob was high from pulling off a con, when he was on you know, a, a high there, an emotional you know, roller coaster, and he's at the top point, when he's just done that, he would have given a different answer right? When Jacob marries the girl of his dreams, he probably would have given a different answer, maybe had a different attitude as he conversed with God. Maybe this question even gets a different response the first time Jacob leaves home when he's young and his belly is full of fire and he knows that one day he's going to come home and, and claim all that is rightfully his. But this night, with his kids and his wives just barely around the corner and the bend in the trail. This night when he's, a home, when he's alone in his fear and alone with his regrets and now alone in his pain, he looks over the whole of his life and realizes that everything he thought he was winning had left him a loser. And so, what is your name? And he has to say, I'm Jacob. And We just hear the name Jacob, but when he says it, he knows. He's saying, I am the heel grabber. I am second. Place. I'm the one that has had to fight for everything in my life. I'm the one who came second, but I've always done things I hoped would make me first. And I didn't care if it hurt Esau. I didn't care if it ruined my relationship with my, divine, my dying father. I didn't care that it divided my family. Heel grabber is never who I thought I would become, but we don't always turn out to be who we planned to be. And I'm Jacob. I am the heel grabber. And I love God's response And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. God looked at him and he saw someone different than Jacob saw himself to be. And so God says, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to change your identity. We're going to change the way you see yourself. We're going to change the way that you can only stare at your own brokenness and emptiness and deceit and con artistry and all the trickery and all of the deceit and everything that you have caused. And I'm going to show you something that I see in you that is different than the way that you see yourself. So you will no longer be Jacob. You will no longer be the con artist of the heel grabber. You are going to be Israel. Israel, the new, in the New International Version, it says he's the one who struggles with God. He's the one who fights with God. He has just wrestled with God, and he was winning. And God is trying to show him, not only have you been fighting with other people all this time, but really behind it all, you were fighting with me, and God gives him a new identity that you are someone who is struggling with God. And yes, as a result, you've also been wrestling with other people. But now, Israel now, now that you have finally surrendered to me, you have won because you have struggled with God and with humans, and you have overcome. And by naming yourself, by confronting who you are and who you've become, by confessing your brokenness, you have come clean. By surrendering to me, you have become a champion because it's only at the end of our own planning that we find a new beginning with God. It's only when you come to the end of yourself that you find where God's grace and God's mercy and God's power begin. And what's beautiful and powerful is that this same struggle is shown all through the life of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus is constantly bringing people to the end of themselves. Jesus is constantly leading people to a confession of their brokenness and their sin. And then when people seem to be at their lowest in their worst possible moment, thinking they had no value of their own, that's when Jesus would look at them and forgive them and give them a new beginning. And it's just like Jason talked about last week in his sermon. If you weren't here, you missed it. It was so great. And we sang the song at altar call that was so beautiful that I'm, I'm fully known and fully loved by you. See, with Jesus, with God, with your heavenly father, with your creator, the one who designed you, who knows that you've been trying to live your ways, in ways that he, live your life in ways that he never intended, the one who knows your true worth and your true value, with him, confession always leads to redemption. Confession never leads to condemnation. And that's why I, as a pastor, I'm not afraid to stand up here this morning and tell each and every one of us that we are all sinners, we are all broken. We have all done things in our life that prove that we are so desperately flawed. We are so desperately empty. We're not half as smart as we thought we were. We're not half as strong as we thought we were. But why am I comfortable saying that? Because I'm saying that to people who are in the presence of a heavenly Father. The one who made you and designed you. Who knew your name before your parents even knew each other. There is purpose and there is value over your life. And it doesn't matter where you've been or where your behaviors have taken you, it doesn't matter what you smell like, what you look like, God can pick you up from where you are and redeem your life. He can. He can. And all over this room, there's stories that prove it. That one and that story and that story and that story, especially her story and that story. I was pointing at Stephanie, just in case anybody was confused. Your story, your story, your story, none of them are over. Nobody's story is over. Man, I didn't even plan the songs they were going to sing, but even when it seems dead, you serve a resurrected Savior, and it is not over. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's all right. Come on, clap your hands, everybody. Give God praise for that. Sometimes it seems like we're fighting with God, right? Sometimes it seems like we're fighting against God, but here's something that Jacob finally understood that night, that God was fighting for Jacob, even when Jacob was fighting against God. See, we might fight against God, but God is always fighting for us. Nobody wants to confess, but God knows it's for our best. Nobody wants to come to the end of ourselves, but we can't find him until we lose ourselves. And when Jacob finally lost and surrendered to God, Jacob finally won God's blessing, if the musicians could come. When Jacob stopped trying to fight against what God was trying to give him, he could finally receive what God had planned to give him all along. Because you remember the story that Jacob was a part of? Remember the promise that God had made to Jacob's grandfather? The story was never in jeopardy. God was never going to lose that story or throw that story away. God wasn't surprised by Jacob or who Jacob was, even though Jacob was surprised at who he had become. God just knew that Jacob was coming and Jacob needed to go through the process to see what God had seen all along. And with that night in Jacob's life, Jacob received new character. Jacob received new hope. He got a brand new beginning and started living a new kind of life and had a new way of seeing life, and it all stemmed from a brand new identity that could only come from the one who could see the value in a broken and empty life that Jacob had become, because we don't always become who we planned to be, do we? We don't. We don't. But when Jacob finally let God declare who he would be the next day, he found redemption for all his yesterdays. That's where it starts. It's where it starts, with allowing God to tell us who we are, with allowing God to tell us the value and the purpose and the design of our lives, and that each and every one of us has redemption, has possibility and promise inside of us, not because of who we are, but rather in spite of who we are. It's all about Him. and It's never been about us. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.